Just let me know. Give me the thumbs up. Everybody have notes? Or does anybody need notes? Everybody good? Okay. All right. Lord, we just pray over tonight's service. Lord, I ask you to bless this night, bless this time. Y'all just agree with me about this. Lord, I'm praying and believing tonight that you'll speak through me your words of life to go out as living seeds of truth sown into good, fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, watered by the Holy Spirit, will take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. Lord, that your word will go out as a hammer that breaks through any type of stronghold, a sword that cuts away what needs to go, light that dispels all the darkness, lies, deception of the enemy, and brings truth and revelation. We thank you, Lord, for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Everybody's doing all right? Doing good. I'm pouring. Well, we got a special um, illustrated sermon tonight for this. I believe you guys will really be blessed by it. And just bear with me because I know at the beginning you're familiar with the Jewish wedding. But I need to get this in this sermon for people that have never heard about this, okay? But I believe that. You know, when you looked at, when we went back and did this, this sermon on Hanukkah back last year, at the end of last year, it was about tearing down the old altars that are not of God and, and rebuilding the altar of the Lord. You see that same principle with Elijah, remember? He had to rebuild the altar that was torn down. And you see the cleansing of the temple for the coming of the Lord. And there was a real masculine aspect to Hanukkah. You had these, these warriors, you know, going out. But Purim is a little bit different. And Purim has more to do, in my opinion, with the bride of Christ and the bride being made ready for Christ's coming. There's a common theme there of deeply consecrating yourself to God. And then that's, you know, throughout most of things with the Lord. You know, you see that as a common theme. But there is a difference. The, the Hanukkah seems to be more of a masculine, authoritative type of... But the, the Purim seems to be more of a surrendering to the work of the Holy Spirit and a bride being made ready. So hopefully you'll see that throughout this sermon. So I'm going to deal with the life of Esther. I'm going to deal with the life of Ruth and the life of the Shunammite, which a lot of people believe is a Bishag. And I'm going to deal with those three lives of people in a progressive move from the outer court area of being deeply consecrated to God to the holy place where there's worship and prayer into the holy of holies where there's intimacy and soaking in God. So that's where we're going tonight, and I have some illustrations my wife will help me with later. And I'm hoping these illustrations will help not only make a point, but help you remember it. Just like earlier when we did this Havdalah, you guys will probably never forget those, those images and the thoughts and, and, and what we you know, went through together. It's really powerful, and it plays into what I'm doing with this tonight. All right, so the Jewish wedding, here we go. This is really a picture and type of Christ and the bride. Can you bring my mic down just maybe one notch? It's kind of humming a little. All right, it was the part of the young lady's chores to go down to the well and draw water. So, if a Jewish young man wanted to find a wife, sometimes he might go out to the well and kind of scope it out. Okay? So, the young man would approach, once he saw a woman that, a young lady that really caught his attention, he would approach her father. And he would have to give a dowry for her. And a dowry is a, basically a payment. And they would negotiate that, you know, her father. He, he might say, okay, I'll give you 
this many sheep, this many donkeys, I'll give you a camel, I'll give you the, you know, this, this, and this, and this. And, and then the father of the young lady might say, well, you know, that sounds all right, but, you know, I think you could do a little better. <laughs> and they, once they negotiated the price, then the dowry was paid in full. And you can see that the price for Christ to have a bride had to be his life. It had to be his blood being shed. So Jesus paid a, a dowry to have a bride. And it was his life on Calvary. All right, so this young man, who's a picture and type of Christ, would give what he could to the father, and a contract was drawn up between the father-in-law and this young man. It was called the ketubah. This was, this was a contract that was drawn up, and it was basically an agreement that you'll do this, I'll do this. And how many knows that when Jesus died on the cross, raised from the dead, that was the dowry, but today he's given us a contract, and it's his word. And so the promises that are in the Bible, he said, I, if you do this, I'll do this. And he's laid out the contract, and that's the ketubah that he left with us, okay? So as this young man, which represents Jesus, would then come to the house and the, of the father uh, to give his dowry, there would be a cup of wine that was poured and set on the table. And even though the young man and her father had already drawn up a contract, they wanted to make sure that she was okay with everything because she has a free will. And how many knows this about God? God does not violate free wills. All right, so she did have a say in the matter, and, but if she agreed to it, she felt good about everything, she would reach out to that cup of wine and she would drink it and she would set it back on the table as a sign that I agree with this and I'm coming into this covenant. And once she did that, it was sealed. Um, let, me, let me explain what I mean by that. But first, um, the way that it was back then, when somebody was engaged, it was basically the same as being married but without consummating the marriage. They didn't live together, and they didn't consummate the marriage. They didn't have sexual relations yet. But that she was spoken for. I mean, it was, she was totally, completely off limits. And it, isn't, it wasn't as flippant as today's society where you're engaged, but you could just easily break it off. It wasn't like that. Once you made this commitment, it was very serious. So that cup of wine that she would drink of, that is, represents us taking Holy Communion today. That we are agreeing to be Christ's bride. And we're agreeing to be totally completely set apart as holy unto him and that we are not going to defile ourselves or cheat on him with the world now you got to understand something in the bible when you read in the bible where god describes israel and describes others as being harlots and being adulterous and unfaithful he's talking about israel worshiping idols he's talking about them getting into sin and being unfaithful to him and so when we accept Christ as our Savior and we've agreed to this contract and we've partaken of Holy Communion, we're saying to the Lord, Lord, we're not going to be like the world. We're not going to be living in sin and being unfaithful to you. We're going to keep ourselves pure for you. 
Is this making sense? So this was a very serious thing. So this young man, which represents Jesus in this story, is excited because now the contract has already been drawn, the, the dowry is paid, the young lady has agreed to the marriage. They're not married yet, they're engaged, but she's agreed to it. So now he's going to run back to his father's house and he's going to begin to build onto his father's house. He's going to build what's called a bridal chamber. So just picture this guy goes back home and his father's helping him. He's got the hammer, he's got all the different tools out. He, you know, he's, he's getting the wood together and everything and he's creating a place for him and his bride. And how many knows that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us right now? He would begin at his father's house to build that bridal chamber. This could take up to two years. And so that represents the 2,000 years that it has taken for Christ to build. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would tell you. So during this time, the bride, see, he's, the bridegroom is gone but he's working to prepare a place for them when they do get married. They're engaged. She, she took of the cup representing to us communion. She, she, now she has to put a veil on her face. And what that means is the same as wearing an engagement ring. She has a veil on. So everywhere she goes, everybody knows, oh, she's spoken for. So even though she may go out and still go draw the water and do the chores with the other young ladies there, she has a veil on and everybody knows she's off limits. And I believe that's what the Lord is speaking to us today, that he's wanting us to veil ourselves and be different from the world, to be holy and set apart to him and ready for his coming. So after the bridal chamber was complete, the father would declare it's time to go get your bride. Now, it's interesting because the father would help the son build, but no, he, the son didn't know when things were complete because it was left into the father's hands to when he would decide. And so that became an idiom that, you know, only the father knows the day or time. You know, that's where, they, that's where that comes from. But anyway, and so the father would look and say, okay, it's done, son, go get your bride. And just like Jesus said, only the father knows the day and the hour. So when it is time and the house is built, the friends, now the father says, go get your bride. So now the bridegroom's ready. He's excited. He's about to go get his bride. So he would send his friends in front of him. This is a totally different culture. So you have to understand this is, this is really different than what we're used to. But the friends would go running in front of the bridegroom, shouting, behold, the bridegroom comes and blasting a shofar. Yes. I saw you have that look like you're about to do something. I was waiting for a shofar to come forth. And they would blast the shofar and lift up a shout, Behold, the bridegroom comes. And this would be in the middle of the night. And so, look at the scriptures. The Bible says that the Lord will descend with a shout of the archangel and the shofar blast. But see, it was the job of this young woman, though, to be ready at any time for his coming. She had to have a lamp by her bed, and every night she had to, you understand, every night she didn't know tonight could be the night. So she had to have her lamp there. The wick is trimmed. There's extra oil. She's ready at any time to leave. 
I believe that's the way the Lord wants us to, to live, even though we're doing the best we can to be effective for him and win souls and, and, and do stuff for his kingdom while we're here. But we're living like at any time he can come. So every night she would think to herself, could this be the night? She would make sure that her lamp was ready because she had to carry that out with her. The wick was trimmed off and she had it filled with oil and she had extra oil in a jar and she wanted to be ready at any time. And that's what Matthew 25 is talking about when it says the wise virgins, they have the extra oil ready, okay? So the lamp speaks of our prayer lives that we're prayed up and ready. The oil speaks that we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we're ready for the Lord's coming. So she was kept on the second floor and the groom would have to put a ladder on the side of the house and climb up the ladder and steal her out the window. So Jesus is coming as a thief in the night to steal away his bride for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And interestingly enough, in Revelation chapter 4, it says there was a door in heaven that opened and a voice that said, come up here. And so, you know, and in Matthew 24, it talked about the door was shut and the, the foolish virgins were saying, Lord, you forgot about us. So there's a warning in scripture that we've got to be ready and not everybody's gonna be ready, I promise you. The marriage ceremony was next. And so the bridegroom got his bride, she's ready. She was anticipating it and they would now go and they had a place where they were set up, was called a chuppah and it was just a covering and they would go there and they would have somebody perform the wedding ceremony. And anybody knows anything about the ceremonies and here in a moment, I'll, I'll show you something with my wife about the, the prayer shawl, the tallit. But you know, you know how Jewish weddings are. They'll stomp the glass and, and all of that. And, and, and they have the seven blessings, but they have the ceremony. But you gotta understand that before that, that woman had made herself ready. Even today in Orthodox Jewish families, before a wedding, a young woman will immerse herself in water, baptize herself, the, it's called a mikveh, she would baptize herself to be cleansed and ready for that marriage. So the Lord is wanting us to be clean and ready and pure before him. So after the marriage ceremony, now they had to consummate the marriage. And this was a big deal because they did not feel that they were truly married until they consummated that marriage. So even though they had the ceremony and the rabbi said, you know, you're married or whatever, and they, they stomped the glass and the blessings were spoken after it was done, everybody there was saying they're not married yet until they go back home and they have sexual relations and they consummate that marriage, they're not considered married. So everybody knew, and there they go to consummate their marriage. And somebody would have to be a witness, not in the room, I hear somebody going awkward, not there present. <laughs> not there present, outside the room. But somebody had to be there to be a witness of the fact, though, that the marriage was complete, okay? So once they went in and they had sexual relations and they consummated their marriage, as her being a virgin, obviously there would be some blood that was shed, okay? So as they consummated their marriage and there was some blood that was shed because she was a virgin, then that blood would be on the sheet and the man would go out to the witness and say, look, here's the blood of our covenant. 
between my wife and I that we are married and our marriage is complete. It is consummated. And the witness would see that blood and he would run back and say it's done and then they would party for seven days. Okay, so that's, that's how it goes. And you see the parallel in so many ways. So whenever Jesus comes back for his bride and he catches his bride away, we're going to be brought to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which I believe will be like a marriage ceremony of sorts. But, you know, obviously the, the consummating of the marriage between Jesus and his bride is going to be that fourth cup, the cup of praise that he did not drink with his disciples at the Passover Seder before he died. He said, I will not drink this cup with you until we drink it together in the kingdom to come. And then he would have that cup with us there. And I believe that will be the consummating of the marriage. Okay. And so you can see all of this. And then for seven days, they would party and they would celebrate. And for seven years, we're going to be at this marriage supper, this celebration. Is anybody excited about this other than me? So the catching away of the bride is at hand. And I encourage you in these last days to partner with the Lord to help make a bride ready for his coming. We need to be about winning souls and seeing revival because that's going to be the means through which a bride is prepared. But the Lord is about the bride being made ready right now. That is something the Holy Spirit is very much actively at work doing. Okay? And I believe the coming of the Lord is near. It could very well be this year. But by his grace and mercy, it may be the Father may put it off for a time for the sake of more souls being saved. So that leads me to this. I've preached on this, and I'll finish preaching on this at upcoming Passover in a month. But the four silver cups, Exodus 6, 6. At a Passover Seder, there's four silver cups. And they get this from... The sons of Israel, the Lord said, I am the Lord. I will bring you out. Number one, I'll bring you out from the burden of the Egyptians. Number two, I will deliver you from their bondage. Number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgments. And then number four, I will take you for my people. And I will be your God and you will be my people. Okay? So the first cup is a cup of sanctification is what they call it. And this has to do with our salvation. We accept Christ as our Savior. The third cup is being delivered. This is where we learn to walk in victory. We get the stuff dealt with in our lives. How many knows when we became a Christian, we came to know Jesus, we had a lot of stuff we had to work through. Amen. All right. This is the cup of deliverance. We begin to work through the things in our lives. The Lord helps us. He changes us. He delivers us. He sets us free from things. And he helps us to get to a place where we're walking in victory. But the third cup is the cup of redemption and this is the cup that jesus took at the passover seder and held it up and said this is the blood of my uh of the, the new covenant you gotta understand something they have been doing that passover ceremony for their whole lives these guys were like 30 years old so their whole lives they've at least done this 30 times so i promise you they have this whole ceremony pretty well memorized and all of a sudden jesus comes in and says i'm totally completely breaking protocol this now is the cup of my blood the new covenant and i guarantee you all of them were like really this is this is new and he took the bread and he said this is my body that is broken for you and so he took out of a passover seder 
he like took the sword of the spirit, if you will, and cut out that cup and that bread. He brought that out of the Passover ceremony and he said, now this is something I want you to do in remembrance of me. And so throughout the year, we take Holy Communion in remembrance of the Lord, but it's a continuation of Passover. And after that third cup, when Jesus took that and said, this, this now represents my body and blood, after that cup, he says, I'm not going to drink this other cup with you until I drink it with you in the kingdom to come. So once again, Jesus broke protocol and didn't finish the ceremony. They left. And I guarantee you those disciples along the way were talking about this. You know, for 30-something years, we've, we've been doing this Passover Seder every year, you know, and now Jesus says the third cup represents his blood, and we didn't drink the fourth cup. There's got to be something very significant about this. And they're sitting there talking amongst themselves, trying to figure it out, you know. And what Jesus, what they gradually began to understand is Jesus was saying this third cup is being fulfilled as I die on the cross, but the fourth cup won't be fulfilled until we drink it at the marriage supper. That's going to be when everything is fulfilled for the bride. It's finished. It's consummated. So that's what that fourth cup represents. So the third cup, when you and I take Holy Communion together, every week that we take it, you've got to understand something. We're going before this communion table, and we're like that, that woman, that bride, that is drinking that cup saying, Lord, I agree to this marriage. I agree to be your bride. I agree to live a holy life and spiritually speaking, to veil myself, and I'm, I'm off limits to the devil and the world. I'm set apart as yours and yours alone. And now every time I take communion, I think of, you know, this could be the last time I take it until I see the Lord. And, and you know, we have the cup, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We have the cup of the last cup, the fourth cup, the cup of praise, the cup of completion, the consummation cup. So that's why Jesus said in Matthew 26, 29, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. All right, so now let me transition to what I wanted to get to, the story of Esther. Now, young people went through the story of Esther last night, so y'all know what's going on. All right. Esther, in some ways, is like Passover in that God performed a major deliverance for his people. We know the story that a man named Haman was a wicked man, and he wanted basically to destroy the Jews completely, so he tricked the king into signing into law, laws that would permit the Jewish people to be annihilated. And God had to use Esther to find favor with the king and expose the plot and turn the whole thing around. And we know the end of the story that Haman was hung on his own gallows, okay? But many people believe, because I'm, I'm tying this into the Spine of Prophecy series on the end times, okay? So what I'm dealing with is the bride being made ready for Christ's coming. But I want you to understand something. Haman and his ten sons represent the future Antichrist and the ten kingdoms that will align themselves with the Antichrist. It's a prophetic picture and type. So the way I'm going to deal with this tonight, I want you all to give me your best ear, okay? I'm going to deal with this, that Esther represents a deep consecration unto God. Now what you got to realize is this, if everybody can hear me, Esther 
had to go find favor with this king. But for her to be able to come into his presence, she had to go through 12 months of this purification ritual. She had to endure, and I'm not saying it was a bad thing, but she had to submit herself to it. If she didn't submit herself to this process, she wouldn't have been able to come before the king. So she had to submit herself where, I mean, you know, clothes are being removed. There's other women there. She's being bathed, which, you know, reminds you can't help but think of being water baptized or something, immersed. She's being bathed. She's having oil poured on her. She's having these spices rubbed in like myrrh, things like that. She's having this put on her. And this goes on for 12 months. And so while this is going on, she's being purified and being made ready to be able to come into the king's presence. But remember this, if she did not submit herself to that process, she would not have been able to access the king. Is everybody seeing what I'm talking about? I believe that a lot of people have a hard time really coming into the Lord's presence because they have not really gone through a deep consecration unto the Lord. So picture Esther that we, like Esther, as the bride of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one that's helping us. He's the one that's putting us through this purification. There's three main ways that God, well, there's five. I'll give you the three ways, though, that God really consecrates people. Number one is through the blood, the washing of the blood of Jesus Christ. And, of course, with that holy communion, a very deep consecration. That's why I've been telling people this, we're doing time of prayer and fasting to make a list of things that you need to deal with. Make a list and pray about it. Get it under the blood. Take communion into those areas and believe God for a deep consecration. Number two is the, the washing of the water. And if you read the scriptures without getting deep into it, it talks about these three testify. John speaks about, I believe in First John, these three testify, the blood, the water, the spirit. And so this is all through the scriptures. But anyway, there's the blood. Then secondly, there's the washing of the waters of baptism. It's a deep consecration. And then number three, it's the oil, the anointing with oil. So you see the blood of Jesus, the communion table. You see the washing of the waters of baptism. And then you see the soaking in the oil, the anointing with the oil, and it is a deep consecration. You see it all through Scripture. How did Moses consecrate Aaron and his sons into the priesthood? He sprinkled blood on them, he washed them in water, and then he anointed them with oil. Without those things, they could not have gone into the Holy of Holies, the holy place. They had to have been consecrated before they went in. So Esther, in this sense, I'm going to talk about it like this. It is a, an outer court experience. It, it, it's a time of, of really going through a deep consecration unto God. And the other two, I gave you the three, but the other two is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. He will be a refining fire in you. He will be a cleansing stream. He will come in into you and begin to take out old desires that you used to have and he'll burn out stuff that needs to go the sanctifying work of the holy spirit and then the fifth is in the book of hebrews the bible says god will send his angels as ministering spirits to minister unto the heirs of salvation the holy angels of the lord will help bring a breakthrough they will and they'll minister to god's people 
So God is wanting us to surrender ourselves to a deep consecration unto him. How many want to go deeper in God? How many want to not just be in the outer court? You really want to be able to get beyond that into the Holy of Holies. But it's, it, it's a process. You've got to submit. Like Esther, if Esther would have said, after three or four days of getting dunked in water and stuff, if she would have said, this is stupid. I don't want to be dunked again, and I don't want oil poured on me anymore. If she would have said that, she would have never saw the king in her life. And she would have never been able to be used to deliver others. For her to be used of God the way she was, she had to surrender to that, submit to that, humble herself. Now, through her preparation, she found favor with the king and delivered a nation. She had to soak like a bath being nude. And that's probably uncomfortable because I'm sure there was other ladies there. But here's the thing. The Lord wants us to be transparent with him. Let me tell you something. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, what's the first thing they did? They went and hid from God and tried to cover it all up. God is wanting us to not do that. He's wanting us to be transparent with him and just say, Lord, I have this issue. I humble myself. Forgive me, Lord. And to be transparent with other people. If you need to go apologize and make things right with other people, do it. Just humble yourself and do it. And as you're making things right with God and making things right with people, I'm telling you, that's a powerful thing. You're being transparent. You're, you're being cleansed before God. The next thing is she had to soak in myrrh oil. Myrrh always speaks in the Bible. If you want to circle this and remember this, it always speaks of death because myrrh was what they would anoint the dead bodies with. And so that's why many people believe that the wise men brought myrrh because they somehow knew or had an inclination that he was born to um, die on our behalf. But nonetheless, myrrh speaks of a death to self. And so um, Esther had to agree that, look, I'm going to surrender myself to a, a death of self, a, a humbling. This went on for 12 months. How many know sometimes the process is a lot longer than what we think it should be? and certainly a lot longer than what we want it to be. I can promise you 12 months in doing this got old after one month. But she humbled herself and surrendered to it. And then the next thing is, is the sweet-smelling fragrances. Just like today, I showed you that as a, a, just an illustration about the Havdalah. But remember the spices. You got to understand, every time I want you to think about, about the spices, I want you to think about that, you know, that picture right there of the priest burning incense. The incense the priests burned had a beautiful fragrance about it and would get all into their garments. How many of you guys have been around people that smoke? You went into a gas station or something. When you come out, do you smell like smoke? All right. When those priests came out of the holy place, they smelled like that fragrant incense. And whenever God would anoint Moses or somebody would anoint somebody with that, that holy oil in Exodus 30, they would smell like that oil. It had spices in it. Now, I'm going to give you here in just a moment an illustration about these spices. All right. And then, of course, we know that the extra oil of the wise virgins, the Lord is saying that we've got to be wise virgins with extra oil, okay? So, whenever, you know, some guys like Perry Stone, Kurt Landry, and some others put together this oil, and this is just the olive oil that they used in the Old Testament time, Exodus chapter 30, and it has in it olive oil, Myrrh, cinnamon, cassia, and calamus. So it's got these spices in it. It has a smell to it. But here's the thing. 
And I'm going to show you something. If you just, a lot of people will come into a place like River of Life and the Holy Spirit is moving in great power and, and they'll get touched. And I've seen people that really get slammed and touched. I mean, they're really touched powerfully. But you know what's sad? Some of them have gotten up from being touched by God and their whole lives were totally changed. They're on fire for God. There's other people that today, right now, are living in unrepentant sin and I seriously worry about where they're going to spend eternity. What's the difference? They both were in the presence of God. Here's the difference. To anoint means to rub in. There was four spices here, and then if you take in Song of Solomon the other spices that are mentioned, add them up, it totals nine. There's nine fruit of the Spirit. Now, it's not nine different fruits. It's like an orange. One fruit, nine slices. The reason why I say that is is because it comes as a package deal. So when the Holy Spirit comes in, he's wanting to impart deep down into us who he is. He's, the Holy Spirit is wanting to rub down into us his nature so that we are changed from the inside out. Where we used to be unloving, now we become loving. Where we used to be prideful, now we become humble. Where we used to have no self-control, now we've learned self-control. It's the Holy Spirit changing who we are, but it's got to rub down in us. So here's the thing. Some people come in and they get touched by God, if you can follow me with this illustration, and the anointing goes across the room and hits everybody. So the anointing, like this, these spices that represent, the spices represent the fruit of the Spirit. Come on, everybody. Pow, hits everybody. It's on them. You can see these spices on my head. Okay? Everybody's got the oil. Now everybody tonight's going to be looking when I pray for them. You see oil. Everybody's got the spices on them. But here's the difference. Some people get up and leave, and it just disappears. Other people, while they're on the floor or whatever, it rubs in. It gets down inside them, and it's not just sitting on top of them. It's down, it becomes down into who they are. That's the difference. That's why it takes 12 months for Esther because it had to get down in her life, so to speak. I'm speaking symbolically. It had to become a part of who she was. It couldn't just sit on top of her. I'm telling you, people, they get touched by God, but it's just like the anointing is just sitting on them, and then they leave out, and they're, ne they're never really truly changed in, on the inside. If they would just let the Holy Spirit rub down deep down into them his anointing, his fruit, and take out those old appetites for things and give them a new desire, change who they are on the inside, they'd never be the same. But it's a process. So that's the first point. This is the outer court where we're anointed and set apart as holy unto God. Now, the life of Ruth. A covering for these last days. So now, when I talk about Ruth, we're moving from just the outer court experience of being consecrated unto God. Now we're moving into the holy place where you have the table of communion, you have the lampstand, you have the incense. It's all there. And this is where, here in a moment, I'm going to have my wife come up and help me with this. But in the life of Ruth, if everybody can follow me with this, Boaz represents Jesus. 
Naomi represents Israel and Ruth represents the church. And see, Naomi representing Israel taught Ruth, this is how you please Boaz. This is how you please the Lord. And Naomi shared with Ruth something as a Moabite she would have never known in a million years. Naomi told her, and this was an ancient custom in Israel, that there's no way that a Moabite woman would have ever known. And Naomi told her, Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. He's a near relative. And because of that, under law, he's able to marry you and provide for you. But let me tell you what you need to do. You need to find out where Boaz is sleeping tonight. He's going to be sleeping by his barley because he threshed it. And this isn't in the Bible, but this is why. He doesn't want people to come steal his barley in the middle of the night. So he's going to be sleeping there by his barley. So here's what you do. Go out to where Boaz is, uncover his feet, and just lay down there by his feet. And when he awakes, he will tell you what to do. And so Naomi had explained this little custom to her and explained to her he's a kinsman redeemer. Ask him to put his, his covering over you. So let me read this, and right after that, I want Sandy to come join me. It says, when he lies down, you'll notice the place where he lies. Go uncover his feet, lay down, and he'll tell you what to do. And anyway, and then it says, so she went down to the threshing floor and did according to what her mother-in-law had commanded her. So this is a picture of Israel teaching the church what pleases the Lord. This is why it's important that we understand our Hebrew roots. There's people out there making their own rules. They're saying, well, this pleases God, and it doesn't. We need to find out what actually does please the Lord. When Boaz had eaten and drank, his heart was merry. He went to lie down on the heap of his grain. He was there to protect it. All right. And um, she came secretly and uncovered his feet, lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And there was a woman laying at his feet. He says, who are you? And she said, I'm Ruth, your maid. And listen to what she says. Spread the corner of your garment over me for you're a close relative. And he said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter, for you have shown your last kindness to be better than your first by not going after young men, whether rich or poor. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you're a woman of excellence. And so she had great favor. And so I want Sandy to join me real quick. So even to this day in Jewish weddings, they use a prayer shawl to, to um, unite the two. All right, so hold that cup there. So let's say that Sandy is the Ruth. Okay, she's Ruth tonight. <laughs> now, in these times in Israel, they would have had not necessarily prayer shawls like this, but you've got to understand that it was under Jewish law that they had to have garments that had tassels. They had to. So all of the people would have had, the men would have had different types of garments that would have had tassels on it, and when they went to pray, they would have just pulled it up over their head like this and prayed. Okay, so this was common in Israel. And they also had certain colors representing their family. And you've got to understand that in Jewish weddings, the husband and the wife will come together under the cloth and they will be united in holy matrimony under this tallit, this prayer shawl. So what Ruth was asking was, she had listened to Naomi to give her the advice if you will go in the middle of the night, uncover his feet, lay at his feet, 
humble yourself and ask him to spread the corner of his garment over you that you'll find favor with him. And so Ruth, the Gentile church, listened to Naomi, the Jewish people, about their heritage and such, and understood what pleased the Lord. And she went there and did that, and Boaz married her. Is all this making sense? So now you're moving from an outer court experience with Esther where you're being deeply consecrated unto God, and now you're going from the outer court into the holy place. What's the difference there's a covering over the holy place, a Michigan covering, remember? The tent. You're going inside the tent to meet with the Lord. Is everybody seeing the symbolism here? Esther was deeply consecrated, but Ruth was the one that was at the communion table. So whenever, you know, you come into Holy Communion, everybody watch me on this. When you come into the Lord's Holy Communion time, you're going from the outer court experience where you're examining yourself and getting washed in the laver and watch, you're coming into, symbolically speaking, underneath the Mishkin where it's just you and the Lord inside the holy place where you're having holy communion, worship and prayer with him. Is anybody seeing this? This is the place where Jesus is putting over you his garment that you're his bride. This is the place where the betrothal cup, where you're saying, Lord, I'm willing to humble myself and to be a bride of Christ and partake of this. And Lord, I'm veiling myself as holy unto you. It's, a, it's hiding into the holy place with the Lord of fellowship and intimacy with him, okay? So hopefully that's a visual that will help people. So you're going into now a place. What's the holy place? The holy place is a place of worship and prayer. So you're going from a deep consecration unto God now to worship and prayer and spending time with him and getting to know him. Thank you. So watch this in Isaiah 4, 4. When the Lord, watch this scripture. This is perfect for what I'm preaching. When the Lord had washed away all the filth from the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. So in other words, the Lord deeply consecrated them. Do you guys see that? He deeply consecrated them. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion over her assemblies a cloud by day, a smoke and a brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy there it will be a shelter to give shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. So in other words, the Lord deeply consecrates and then brings you into that holy place where there's a covering. You know, if it was pouring down rain in the outer courts, you're going to get wet. But if it's pouring down rain in the holy place, there's a covering. So laying at the master's feet covered in his tallit, his prayer shawl, the Mishkin, a personal tent at the table of showbread, the little tent, and those tassels that represent God's word. This also represents, I'm going to move off this, so just follow me. This also represents the, the chuppah where the Jewish people get married. It also represents the priestly wedding garments. And Jesus, whenever he was on the earth, he had to have worn these garments. It was under law. 
And that was the garment, guys, that the lady with the issue of blood came up and grabbed the hem of his garment and was healed. That was what she grabbed, was the tassels. And not only that, but it was not an isolated incident. There's a place in Mark that says that all the people came to him and touched the corner of his garment, that tallit, that, that it's called the tzitzit, the, uh, the tassels there, and everybody that touched them were healed. So it wasn't just an isolated incident. That was something that was going on in his ministry. And let me tell you something else real quick, and I'm going to get off this. The apostle Paul, being a Pharisee, whenever it says he was a tent maker, if you look this up, he was actually making those prayer shawls. That's what he meant. Because tallit means little tent. Seriously, that's what he made. A lot of people think that he made like tents for people, like families to live in, but they all lived in houses. That wasn't what was going on. He was a Pharisee, and he made those tallits, those little tents. He made them, and he would sell them, and that's how he made some extra money. And I would imagine all the Gentiles getting saved, probably a lot of them said, hey, you know, I would like a prayer, prayer shawl. And so he would make it for them. All right, so we move now from the outer court like Esther being deeply consecrated unto God to the holy place like Ruth where the Lord is now covering you with his presence. It is a betrothal cup. It is a place of worship and prayer and fellowship. And now the Lord wants to take it deeper to where you can move into the holy of holies into a place of intimacy with God. How many would like to be intimate with the Lord? So this leads me into the Song of Solomon, the Shunammite woman. It's been suggested that it was a Bishag because she was, uh, could be the Shulamite bride from Song of Solomon since she was a Shunammite taken to minister to David in his old age. And I gave the scriptures for that. So. But nonetheless, let me give you a couple scriptures. So I want you to picture something real quick. There's a lady named Hannah in the Bible who was barren. And she, her husband had two wives, her and another woman. The other woman kept getting pregnant. So she's mocking Hannah. And you got to understand that in this culture, to not have kids, was it did not look good on you. And so this other wife was just totally ridiculing her. So she goes down to the tabernacle area. Eli was there ministering, and she's praying. And she says, Lord, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And she's really seeking God for, to be pregnant and have a son and give him back. And so Eli comes to her and says, may your, may your prayer request be granted. She goes back. She gets pregnant. So after she has the child and weans the child, she brings the child back to Eli to the tabernacle and says, I'm going to fulfill my vow and gives him to Eli to be a priest unto God, a minister. Now, this was interesting because normally only Levitical people could do this. And uh, if I remember correctly, Samuel was from uh, Ephraim. So he was not Levitical by blood. But he was set apart from birth as holy unto God. Now, I want you to look at this. Eli knew that little Samuel. Now, some people said you can't be 30 years. You got to be 30 to 50 years of age to minister in the temple. So, so Samuel was probably 30. I don't believe that. I think that he was a young man. I believe he was because there's several reasons. But one reason is I believe Eli knew as a very young boy, if I can put him in there where God's presence is, it'll sensitize him to the presence of God and sensitize him to God's voice. But anyway, listen to this. The lamp of God had not gone out. So the temple lampstand was still burning. 
And Samuel was lying down in the temple where the ark of God was. Now, where was the ark? The Holy of Holies. This breaks every bit of protocol known to man. You cannot take an Ephraim boy and stick him in the Holy of Holies. Okay, he's not supposed to be in there. But see, it's just like David eating the consecrated bread. You know, God always, there was always a leading of the spirit there. And, and of course, I believe God was pleased with it, actually. So what happened was Eli knew if I can take little Samuel and put him in the Holy of Holies by the ark and have him sleep there every night in the glory, he's going to be changed in the presence of God. He's going to know God's voice. He's going to know God's presence, and he's going to be a different person. So Eli knew to do that. I believe Eli was led by the Lord, led by the Spirit to do that as a priest unto God, as a man of God. So what I'm saying is now you're moving past the deep consecration into the holy place where there's that worship and prayer. But even beyond that, now you're moving into the holy of holies where there's an intimacy with God, a soaking with God in his presence. Now think about it for a minute. How many would love to have that with God? To soak in his presence, be intimate with him. But there's a process of the outer court consecration. There's a process of getting to know the Lord in worship and prayer that will take you to that intimate place. You can't just run in there one day. It's a process. So I want you to notice in the Song of Solomon a couple things real quick. Here's a young lady that is learning to be intimate with the king, learning to be close to him. But she made some mistakes along the way. So it starts out, I'm going to read this. I don't think it's in your notes, but Song of Solomon 2, 11, it says, Behold, the winter is past, the rain is gone, the flowers have already appeared in the land, the time has arrived for pruning the vines. So this represents the spring feast we're first coming to the Lord. The winter is the long 2,000-year period of grace, and now the, we're in the last days, the time of the harvest. And I think the message here is where the Lord is saying, wake up, we're in the last days. You need to be seeking me in prayer. Song of Psalm 2.15. What happens when you begin to seek the Lord in prayer? Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining our vineyards. It's the little things that we think are little anyway that are hindering us. But as you're in prayer and, and spending time with the Lord, he begins to catch those little foxes and pull out those little things that are hindering your walk with God. Pretty soon it goes from that, the foxes are being caught. So now, Song of Solomon 3.16, it goes deeper. Awake, O north wind, come wind from the south. Make my garden breathe out the fragrance. Let its spices spread abroad. So see, the spices that were rubbed down into her in the outer court, now she's saying that they will be spread out to others. So this place of intimacy will cause an impartation in us, but will flow out to other people. So just like when you're in the outer court and that anointing is being rubbed down in you, you're changed, and you go into the time of worship and prayer, and then you go into soaking in intimacy with God. When you come back out of that, there's something that God wants to release out of you to other people, a fragrance of his presence. Song of Psalm 5, 2 through 8, this is where she started getting off course. A lot of people do this. 
She said, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. A voice, my beloved, was knocking at the door. And if you read this in Hebrew, he was really beating on the door. It's like she was in a, in a coma or something spiritually. She was, she was out of it, and he was having to awake her, awaken her. How many people in the body of Christ have truly fallen asleep? Guys, seriously, they're not praying anymore. Spiritually speaking, they're on spiritual life support. And it's like the Lord is really beating on the door, wake up get up you've got to get out of this slumber and he says open to me my sister my darling my dove my perfect one for my head is drenched with dew my locks with the damp of night I've, and she says i've already taken off my dress how can i put it on again i've already washed my feet i don't want to get dirty again she's being lazy she doesn't want to pray and so the response of the lord my beloved extended his hand through the opening and my feelings were then aroused for him so I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with the myrrh that he left there on the handle. And I opened to my beloved, but he was gone. My heart went out to him as I spoke. I searched for him, but I didn't find him. I called for him. He did not answer. The watchman, so he had, already, he had come to spend time with her. She said no, and he moved on. So now they've got a problem in their relationship they're having to work through here, okay? And so while she's searching for the Lord, it says, the watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me and they struck me and wounded me. The guardsmen of the walls took away my veil from me. I'm gonna tell you something. Unfortunately, there's people out there that really are looking for the real Jesus. But a lot of the watchmen on the walls out there are, are abusing the bride of Christ in one way or another. They're not taking them to the Lord they're oppressing them where they are. But she was crying out, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell me where he is. She learned a valuable lesson here. When the Lord comes knocking, open the door. Don't be lazy. And then Song Psalm 7 1. Now she's beginning to get out of that laziness and she's beginning to want to do stuff. It says here, How beautiful are your feet and sandals. Well, prince's daughter so in other words what does the bible say how beautiful are the feet of them bring good, bring good news now she's beginning to do stuff for the lord she's beginning to be active for him she's getting out of that lazy laying around not wanting to do anything garbage now she's she learned her lesson she got a beating she ran through the night couldn't find him she learned her lesson now she wants to spend time with him and she wants to do stuff for him. And this is where it ends up. It started, I'm going to show you actually where it really started, but here's how it ends up. In Song Psalm 8.3, let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. A place of soaking in intimacy with just the two of them. And see, in Song Psalm 1.3, this is how it started. You know, when people first get saved, they have that zeal. But then if they're not careful, they're going to go to sleep and lose it. And they're, they're too lazy to pray. They're too lazy to get out and do anything for the Lord. And pretty soon they're in this spiritual coma. And the Lord's got to come beating on their door and help them get out of it and wake them up out of it. But see, when she very first started in Song Psalm 1-3, she said, my beloved is to me like a sachet of myrrh resting between my breast. What that is is a, like a necklace. And 
a satchin of myrrh, it had a fragrance. So she, she had a love for the Lord, and there was a, a heart worship there. There was a, there was a time with him, and, and there was a fragrance there, but it got lost. But you see, as the Lord brought her through that process at the very end of Song Psalm 8, 3, her, the final thing she's really saying here is, let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. In other words, I just want to be with him. So here we are now from the outer court. I believe this year, guys, if I can get everybody's attention for a second, tonight I'm going to anoint everybody with oil, and this is going to be a deep consecration. This is different tonight, okay? This is going to be a deep, here at Purim, a deep consecration unto God with the oil. And then in about a month, what are we doing? We've got Passover. It's going to be a deep consecration unto God regarding the blood and communion. Then, about a month after that, we're going to have a church-wide baptism. What's that? A deep consecration with the immersion. I believe with all my heart this year is going to be different than any other year. This is going to be a year where we really, truly go deeper in God, and it's going to have to do with, like, destiny. Really, really getting through things that need to be people getting on the other side of things that they've been praying about to where God can really use them in a powerful way. This is going to be the year of destiny. The year of restoration. Because as there's that deep, just like Esther, Purim, she, she had that deep consecration, she goes to the king, and this huge, massive deliverance happens. You know what that represents? Jubilee, restoration. The deep consecration that you're going through right now for the next couple months, I believe will play into a major jubilee and restoration in your life. God's wanting to take us from the outer court of consecration to the holy place of worship and prayer like never before. But even beyond that to the holy of holies where you're intimate with the Lord. I'm telling you guys, and I, I want to start moving to a close with this. There's got to be a place of soaking in God and being intimate. See, when we come into prayer, we come through the blood and we worship and we pray and we talk to him and we tell him everything that, that we need to tell him and all that's wonderful, we need to do that. But there needs to come a point in time where we quiet ourselves and we listen. Is everybody getting this? We quiet ourselves and we listen and we really just soak in his presence. And if we'll do that on a regular basis, we can really stay in tune with the Lord because he'll show you things. But also it's in those places of intimacy where, yes, you've deeply consecrated yourself. You've gone now into the holy place. You're worshiping, you're praying, you're doing everything. It's like the covering of his presence and, and spending time with him, yes. But then it goes beyond that to just quieting yourself and soaking in his presence. And it's in those places that a lot of times God will show you something that will really break through for you. He'll show you an area that, that brings great revelation, that brings a great breakthrough in your life, that brings a deliverance you need, it brings a healing you need, whatever it is. It's in those places of intimacy with him that a lot of these things start really getting resolved. And that's why I tell people when we pray for people, if they do fall out, I tell them, look, don't just get back up. Soak there. Because I know, unfortunately, a lot of people don't do enough of that at home, you know. 
But I'm saying, guys, soak there. Don't get up. Just rest in the Lord for a while. And if you don't fall out, go find a place to soak in God by yourself. Because I know that as they're intimate with Jesus. See, what I'm trying to get people to do is to realize that he's here. Let's reach out and grab the hem of his garment. All of us. Let's reach out and just say, Jesus, I want to be with you. Spread the corner of your garment over me. And let's spend time together, just the two of us. So the shofar. How many of you guys have seen an antelope? <laughs> Every time now I see, I went, listen, I went to South Dakota with my wife and daughter, actually, this was years ago, 10 years ago. And I was up in this upper room because um, the people there, the lady was a Christian, and I'm telling you, it was a ghost town. It was us and some deer. And we were the only ones there in this lady. And so we had the hotel to ourselves. It was snowed in. It was, it was fun. But I remember the lady was a Christian, and she knew us, and, and she knew that we, I was a minister and stuff. So I asked her, I said, do you guys have like a place I could go just spend some time with the Lord, some devotion? She said, I got the perfect place. And she said, you go up to this place. And I went in there. I'm serious. I've never seen a place like this. It was, a, it was some kind of a conference hall, and I was there by myself. But there was all around it. You guys remember, right? Did y'all see it? All around it was the heads of different animals. No, I mean, how many do you think? 30, 40? I mean, they were the, around the whole conference room. And I remember thinking, that's where they get the shofar. I saw an antelope, and I saw some other ones, and I thought, that's the ram's horn. And I was, you know, pointing them out, you know. But this is, this is I guess, an antelope. I'll tell you something. They, you can smell that. You want to smell the dead animal, Jerry? That's, <laughs> I'm just kidding, man. But this, seriously, they stink. But this is really, truthfully, it is a, a horn off an antelope. But the reason I'm bringing out about this being a dead animal is this. When Jesus comes, he's coming back for a bride that has made herself ready. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet the shofar of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then those that are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air his feet are not on the Mount of Oz it's in the air and we will be forever with the Lord now look at this there is a death to self that releases tremendous spiritual authority how many knows that we've got to completely die to ourselves crucify with Christ and then there's great resurrection authority and I believe that's the prophetic message about the horn the shofar this thing is dead but through it you get this sound that penetrates the enemy's camp and brings confusion to the enemy and fear to the enemy okay thanks there's a piercing the darkness and destroying the works of Satan. There is, remember how Esther faced major spiritual warfare, but it was her consecration that brought the great victory. Listen, the shofar blast is, is what is going to be connected with Christ's coming. But the message in this is that we are totally dead to ourselves in a bride that's made ready. And so whenever we hear that shofar blast, and let me tell you something. There's something about the blast of the shofar that is so powerful. It seems to me there's been people, I don't know if y'all knew this, there's people that have been healed at shofar blast. There's people that have been delivered of things. 
there's some kind of a release in the spirit realm where Satan's structures, the strongholds he has, that it breaks right through those. That somehow the walls of, of Jericho seem to come down at the shofar blast. Gideon's victory, somehow there's a great confusion in the devil's camp. And somehow also it wakes up God's people. In the spirit realm, it seems to wake up God's people and help to gather people in the spirit. And also, angels are released as shofar blast. God's holy angels are sent on assignment. So that's connected to this. So as we make ourselves ready, what are we waiting to hear? The great shofar blast of Christ's coming for his bride. And so here's the last thing we're going to pray for people tonight. Gideon had to consecrate his life unto God. Do you remember when Gideon, God, well, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, mighty warrior, and then he started looking around. You talking to me? And the angel said, yeah, it's, this is what the Lord told him he had to do. You've got to go in your father's backyard. You've got to tear down that altar to Baal, cut down that Asher pole. You've got to destroy it. And then I want you to put in a sacrifice to God on top of it and shed blood on top of that. And that blood is going to cancel out Satan's right to this family and consecrate this family back unto God. And then Gideon, after he was consecrated unto God, led one of the greatest victories you could ever imagine for Israel. What I'm trying to say is this. That's what I believe God is speaking to River of Life. If we will allow him to put his body and blood on every area of our lives and deeply be consecrated unto him, he's going to bring about a great victory. So let me just read this last bit. Right now we're consecrating ourselves like Esther, being faithful in fellowship with the Lord like Ruth, and we need to be soaking in intimacy with the Lord like the Shunammite. We're going to be saturated with his fragrance over time and take it out into the harvest field. Did y'all catch that? We're going to be saturated with his fragrance and take it out into the harvest field and be busy about his kingdom. We wait with anticipation for his coming for we will hear that heavenly shofar blast and the shout of the archangel as our bridegroom comes wearing his heavenly tallit, his prayer shawl, and written down from that prayer shawl as he's riding that horse written on the sides of those prayer shawls going to go down his thighs it's going to say king of kings and lord of lords I felt that when I said it and he's going to steal away his bride to a heavenly hoop of the glory of God the place of the marriage supper of the lamb and there we will drink that final fourth cup together and be consummated it's going to be sealed all right, so that was my illustrated prophetic sermon for tonight. I want to be deeply consecrated unto God. I want to be like Ruth and be able to go into that place of being covered with his presence and worship and pray. But like the Shunammite, I want to be able to go in like Samuel and soak in his glory and just be intimate with him and be quiet and listen. I'm going to tell you something about soaking guys that are calling to the ministry. Catherine Coleman said it's the place of great anointing. Did y'all catch that? When you soak in God's presence, it's a place where a very powerful anointing gets down into you and will release out to others. So I feel led to do this tonight. Let me blast this show for us. Is that all right? And then we're going to pray for people. This is what you're going to hear when Jesus comes, guys. The dead in Christ, it's going to be loud enough to wake the dead, right? The dead in Christ are going to rise first. And those alive and remain are going to be changed in twinkling of an eye. 
but we're going to hear that shofar blast. You know, a lot of people hear the shofar and they say, it just does something in my spirit. I believe when we're born again, that there's the Holy Spirit within us, there's something in us that's longing for that day. To hear that shofar blast as the king comes, behold, your bridegroom is coming and the bride is caught away. So Lord, we thank you. We close out this sermon time with the shofar blast in Jesus' name. kill these recordings for me and I'm going to pray for people tonight Holy Spirit we ask you to come Lord move in power transform lives tonight in Jesus name I'm going to anoint you guys tonight with this oil if you can get some worship going and we can kill the lights over here too I'm going to use this anointing oil but listen as I anoint you I want you to rub this oil in if you don't hear me make this announcement you're going to look funny when you go out witnessing and everybody know you weren't paying attention to Pastor Scott but I'm going to put this on you and you, go, you need to rub it in. But I want you to remember what I preached tonight. That let the Spirit of God rub down into who you are. His nature, His fruit, His spices down in you. That you'll never be the same. We want to be totally different tonight. Yeah, we might ought to move some chairs too. Because probably people are going to be falling out. But Lord, we thank you. For those that are here tonight. In this holy place, at this holy time, Purim. fall out tonight soak in the Lord for a little while and then we'll go witnessing after that but listen 